what we usually do on these evenings is um, meditate for a little while and uh, for about 30 minutes and I'll guide that for a while. Then, uh, and I'll, I think we're going to take a break after that and then I'll uh, give a talk and, um, and then have time for some Q and a, we go, we have until nine fifteen, but we don't usually go that full time online. It's been a long time since I've been at spirit rock. I, uh, I, I kind of feel like I want to just drive out there uh, just a <laughs> wave or something. Uh, I know uh, many of you have been there and then I think many of you have not been there. Um, it is a special place and it's there. They are having um, live retreats or, you know, uh, and, um, but they're not doing uh, so residential retreats they're doing, but the things that I do like the uh, evening classes and day long events, they are not doing them on the land yet. So kind of hoping uh, that happens soon. Although there's also the potential loss of this community, which I hope that we'll, we'll just keep going, um, you know, keep, keep it online as well as live. I've been fortunate to have avoided getting COVID for the, these two and a half years. My wife finally got it when we were in Scotland. And somehow, even though we were together, I didn't get it from her. She was rigorous in wearing a mask even when she was asleep. However, I was just just on this past Wednesday, I was exposed once again to someone who, after spending the day, afternoon with me, got a headache that evening and then texted me and said, uh, I'm positive. So I'm kind of on the clock waiting to see if I'm going to get sick in the next couple of days, which is a weird like thing. I'm sure a lot of a lot of you have probably been through this Uh but it's especially weird when it's like, you know, like you're exposed and you're like, okay, let me test myself again. So uh, anyway, I'm feel good now. <laughs> so I'll, uh, uh, I'm no more punchy than normal. So, but uh, it does seem like that people that, that, that I've been exposed to have all had very uh, mild cases. So let's just figure it'll be a way for me to get, uh, I'm immunized, update my immunization. So um, before I start, uh, which is still before I start, I will mention the, the two things I have coming up, um, live events. One is in Asheville, uh, North Carolina, if you're anywhere near there, September 5th, which is Labor Day in the evening. And there's a link to that information on my website, which Ileana put in the chat kevingriffin.net. And then on the 24th and 25th of September, I will be in Minneapolis at Common Ground uh, Meditation Center, which is a wonderful place. Um, both places are wonderful, actually. So uh, really delighted to be able to get out and, and see some people uh, in person. So let's begin uh, set to set. So just you know, settling back to a comfortable posture. And if you can sit upright comfortably, 
that's kind of the traditional way to sit. And uh, But if you have uh, any physical limitations or in any kind of condition where it's difficult, you can certainly meditate lying down. Just tends to be maybe more tendency to get a little sleepy. That's all right, too. So you can close your eyes, or if you're more comfortable, just lower your gaze. Kind of, you know, taking our eyes away from the screen for a little while. Just You can just listen to my voice, or if you prefer, you can turn off the sound and just meditate. So we begin our practice just having a general sense of the feeling of sitting, the feeling of being in a body, the life of the body. We, you know, as soon as we close our eyes, there's a shift in perspective. You might feel certain sensations or aspects, elements of the body that you don't normally tune into. So even before you intentionally start to direct your attention, you can just notice what, what arises when you first close your eyes or lower your gaze. And so there's noticing the, the body and noticing any sounds in your environment. You might pick up sounds coming through my microphone, sounds from my house or my neighbors, <laughs> my neighbor's dog sometimes. And just feeling the body breathing. I think it's helpful to do some intentional relaxation as we settle, relaxing the jaw, facial muscles. Releasing the shoulders. Softening the belly. Just a sense of letting go through the body. As we tune in, we you might notice the sort of unintentional tightness, some of the holding that we do. That I can feel that in my own body and just kind of feel my breath and release it. It's almost like you're letting 
gravity draw you downward. Oh, the beginning of a period of meditation is kind of a key period. If you're coming into the sitting with a lot of energy or stress, anxiety, agitation, then it can be difficult to just be still. And it can seem as if the mind is way too busy to get any kind of meditative calm. And it's not that we can just come come in and force the mind to get quiet. But many times I think you'll find that if you can just sit, sit with the energy for a little while, just be mindful of it, allow it, feel it, that it will settle of its own accord without you doing anything special. we need to bring a certain amount of trust or faith to this process in order to sit through those busy, agitated states and to allow the more peaceful states to arise. Now letting the attention focus more on the sensations of breath coming to the particular sensations at the nostrils, at the belly. We're sitting with the movement of breath, the rhythm. Noticing when the body draws in a deeper breath or when the breath gets more quiet. Just all those changes, each in-breath, each out-breath.
It's natural for the mind to wander. So when we notice we've lost touch with the breath, can acknowledge that and gently come back. Start again. This observing the movement of mind, the returning to the breath, is the central element of our practice. Very simple. That alone can allow the mind to settle. If there is, though, a particularly persistent thought pattern, something that keeps repeating and showing up, sometimes we need to acknowledge that and turn towards that. See what's what's going on. And very often, rather than the content itself, we'll see that it's some emotion underlying the thought or driving the thought. And so being with the physical experience of that emotion, breathing with that, feeling that, allows us to practice mindfulness and and actually helps us to process and let go of the feelings. Feelings need to be acknowledged when we try to avoid them or repress them or transcend them. They tend to just continue on. It's only when we let them in, give them space, that we help them to pass through, pass away.
So our practice has this central focus of using breath. But then we can notice other things if if our attention is drawn to thoughts, feelings, sounds, sensations. We we don't try to block those out. We try to be with them fully before we return to the breath. If something is very persistent, like a sound or sensation, can make that our meditation for as long as it's there, for as long as it's really pushing into our awareness. Mindfulness can be applied to anything we can perceive. It can take some time and some practice to become comfortable with this kind of movement of our attention. But in time, it becomes quite natural. Whatever is arising, drawing the attention, we bring mindfulness to that. We may come to a point where things quiet down and we're able to just rest with the breath. So I'll just let you work with those instructions now.
still seems a little weird to me to be just sitting silently <laughs> with everybody on Zoom, but it's what we got. So uh, be grateful for what we've got. Um, I want to take a little break. Uh, yeah, I think we might as well make it a full 10 minutes and then I'll come back and talk. So at 7.55, we'll come back at 8.05, okay? At Spirit Rock, we would always have to ring the bell and get everybody away from the tea area and come back into their seats. So we don't have to do all that here. Uh, so welcome again, and uh, glad glad people are showing up. Um, this second Friday class, originally it was the first Friday <laughs> when, when we started this, probably 15 years ago, but uh, eventually it evolved to second Friday, but it's been going on for a long time, and I appreciate Spirit Rock supporting us um, you know, the recovery community isn't isn't always supported in Buddhist circles. Um, I, I was invited recently, sometime in the last couple of weeks, to uh, write a piece for Alliance War magazine um, about my experience with Buddhism and recovery. And, that, and they asked several people, so that I guess they're going to have some kind of an issue that has several little pieces about about dharma and recovery about buddhism and recovery and maybe 12 step and um and so uh, you know i wrote this short piece about that connection and 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 what kind of came out was was saying i mean i started out by saying you know buddhism didn't get me sober you know and um I'm not even sure it was like uh, part of, part of getting sober. I I mean I presume it was everything had to have been part of it like all the causes and conditions but um but I had clearly you know I'd been practicing Buddhist meditation uh for about 5 years before I got sober and you know and I, I clearly I, there was something I had missed <laughs> Uh, you know, that, that I hadn't figured out that drinking and using in a habitual, addictive way uh, was not really part of the path and was an obstruction to the path. Um, somehow I thought I could sort of do both, right? And, and, uh, and um, so, you know, what I've found was that when I got sober, and really try to start to change my behavior uh, around many things that, you know, went along with my addiction. Um, that then my meditation got better, <laughs> you know, more deeper, quieter, easier, you know, it's, you know, you don't like to get too much into like a good meditation versus a bad meditation because it's not so much that, it, you know, my, my bed, let's say my meditation started to bear more fruit. And indeed, of course, my life completely changed. And then over time, you know, at six and seven years sober, then the Buddhism started to kick in in a deeper way. And, 
and then the Buddhism started to come back and started to influence the, the recovery. Whereas in the begin, beginning, it was more like the recovery influencing the Buddhism, if that makes sense. Um, and then, of course, they started to blend together to, uh, where, to the point where now it's dif difficult for me to really even talk about one without the other. They're so integral in, in my mind and in my life, my thinking. But the, but the key thing that I was clearly missing from Buddhism uh, before I got sober formally would be called the five precepts. And, and in the Eightfold Path, the five precepts fall under the section called right action. And so that's, that's what I want to talk about tonight. Um, for the precepts and, um, you know, just sort of some of the nuances of them, the, the elements of them. But the five precepts are offered in Buddhism as trainings, to kind of, which distinguishes them from, from uh, commandments or the suggestion that if you break them, it's a sin and there's something on your, some mark on your soul uh, if you break a precept. You know, and I, I can say all that, <laughs> but when we talk about karma, it's, it's hard to say that it's almost hard not to say that it's, you know, very similar ultimately. Uh, but except that in Buddhism, there's no soul. We're just saying that when we do unskillful things, there will be results. When we do skillful things, there will be results. So rather than thinking of it as a mark on our soul, it's more like, uh, you know, something that pushes our life in a certain direction. If I think of karma as kind of more of a flow than like a solid thing. And, um, and every thought, word, and action that I take uh, influences that flow, that movement, um, which is, you know, what's beautiful and scary <laughs> about Buddhist teachings in a way, you know, you don't get to just sort of go to uh, go meditate on Sunday, and then you've taken care of your uh, ethical and spiritual responsibilities. It's it's uh, it's something we need to pay attention to as much as possible in, in every moment, if possible. So the precepts give us a framework uh, for that paying attention uh, to sort of things to pay attention to. So as I say, they're, they're, they're suggested as, as training. So I'm going to read the, the five precepts in one of the versions of them that calls them trainings. So the first precept, I take the training precept to refrain from killing any living beings. Two, I take the training precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. Three, I take the training precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. Four, I take the training precept to refrain from false and harmful speech. And five, I take the training precept to refrain from intoxicants that cloud the mind. So 
you know, it occurs to me, even as I start to talk about this, that uh, the main setting in which teachers talk about the precepts, in my experience, is at the beginning of uh, intensive meditation retreats. Uh, I remember asking one person who comes to a lot of my classes uh, about another teacher that he uh, often sat with, and I asked him if he that teacher ever talked about the precepts and he said he'd never heard the teacher talk about the precepts and so i think we i th- i think that happens because we're afraid that it's going to be this moralistic you know fire and brimstone type of thing like oh we shouldn't we don't want to come down on people and make them feel guilty or something you know and 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 that's not at all the spirit of the precepts and it's certainly not a helpful way to think of them, but really rather as uh, integral parts of our practice. So that if we, sometimes the five precepts are called the five precepts of non-harming because they're all about non-harming. So if we think of them and start to think of them as guidelines for non-harming, and it takes us out of this sort of moralistic framework, like you know, some kind of Puritan kind of view. Don't do this; you'll be bad, you know. But rather, like, oh, uh, yeah, I don't want to harm people. I don't want to harm myself. And and these are some suggestions for how to do that. And and the the precepts also in Buddhism. Another thing that's interesting about them is that they aren't thought of as these narrow legalistic rules but they're really thought of as contemplations that we want to open up as widely as possible. <laughs> you know, whereas there, you know, there can be this tendency like, oh, with the, I don't know, you know, with some kind of a moral precept or commandment that we think, well, uh, what's the line? And and can I, can I sneak in? <laughs> Is this just over the line that I'm safe? You know, in Buddhism, it's, it's not about that. It's like, oh, how can I expand this to, to have the, the broadest meaning for it? You know, and I, and I also certainly need to say that when I talk about the precepts, I'm not talking about them as someone who views themselves as a perfect uh, practitioner or the example of someone who never breaks the precepts. Um, I try to be honest with myself about what I think is really behind the precepts and, and also acknowledge that there are times when I'm not willing to live up to that and, and that, that I have to be willing to, you know, that if there are karmic consequences to that, so be it, you know, um, for instance, I really think that the first precept implies that we shouldn't eat meat, but I do eat meat. And, uh, you know, maybe some of you are going to click off, leave now, <laughs> uh, because, uh, you know, that a lot of people think Buddhists don't eat meat. And, and, and I think we probably shouldn't. <laughs> but, you know, for a variety of reasons, I have been a vegetarian at, for a period of five years, twice, so 10 years, but I'm not these days. And, um, and I think that's, you know, questionable in terms of, uh, I think that's, that's sort of implied in there that, that I think that would be a skillful way to respond to this precept. 
Um, that being said, what I what I think is the the underlying element of the first precept that to, to refrain from killing living beings is to refrain from hatred, because that's where that's the underlying energy of kill of killing living beings. So. You know, if I'm going to think of this precept as a spiritual guideline, it's going to be one that's actually encouraging me to be loving. And and then non-harming, you know, in in whatever ways, you know, uh, I can I can be non-harming. But I think this underlying idea of of not hating is is the spirit of it, of it. so it's that's we'll see that the the um, the precepts are antidotes or to the the um, or, or their expressions of yeah antidotes I guess guidelines around the three poisons of greed hatred and delusion. So the the first precept being the antidote or response to hatred. Um, and and that means then that the precept also then becomes a reflection for us on our own anger and our own violence, our own potential for violence, and the ways that uh, that may just be an internal experience, but but just to see that and that seeing our own hatred and our own potential for violence then can be a doorway into compassion uh, because we see that there's tremendous, tremendous amounts of violence in the world. And, uh, and who among us has not had a hateful and violent thought in our lives. It's just that hopefully we haven't acted on that. And some of us have Uh, certainly alcoholics, a lot of alcoholics, particularly, uh, and addicts, when they are intoxicated, uh, a lot of violence happens in those situations. So some of you uh, probably, I'm guessing, have had moments of violence in your life. I have. Uh, and, and so that recognizing that, yeah, I'm sober and I'm a Buddhist, you know, and I meditate and I practice loving kindness. Yeah, but, but I still have the seeds in there. And so can I be compassionate and forgiving of those who, who don't have, who, who don't have the control, I will say, or, you know, who, who have crossed that line into, into violence and, and even, uh, even killing other humans. Um, and of course, it's important to say that when we bring forth that compassion and potentially forgiveness, it's never meant to be condoning that or saying that people don't bear the consequences of those actions. And they certainly should and, and, and must. Uh, but, you know, it's the question of whether we also want to carry that you know, increase the hatred, as they say, as the Buddha says, hatred only uh, ends through love, 
not through hatred. Um, so the the conclusion for that for me about the first precept is that the the power of the first precept of following this precept is the power of love is cultivating that love within ourselves to not to we start with this non you know this negative thing to not kill and then to not harm and then to to actually be kind and to be compassionate uh, so, so this is what I think is important about these precepts is not to take them as, okay, there are these rules I have to follow. Okay, good. I'm following the rules. Now what? No, it's to how, how can these things really inform our practice? And the, so the second precept, to take the training precept to refrain from taking that which is not given, then is the antidote to the poison of greed. You know, and it has a, you know, again, as all these precepts have, it has a social purpose, you know, to, okay, so people's possessions are protected and, and uh, you know, in society, people can, can uh, live together in some degree of safety and harmony. But the, but the deeper element of it for us in our, practice in our mindfulness practice and indeed in our recovery is seeing our own grasping our own craving so even if we don't steal something in our mind there's this desire you know and and each of us you know carries a, you know, a lot of desires within us and so a, a really important part of our meditation practice is seeing desire, just as it's important for us to see anger and to let that go. So this precept then becomes a guideline around the traditional term is renunciation, you know, non-grasping. Uh, and, and seeing how that grasping comes out of a sense of a feeling of lack, a feeling of hunger, and seeing that suffering within ourselves, you know, bringing kindness to that. You know, uh, again, each of us carries these longings, and this is inherent to the human condition. It's what the Buddha talked about, that we have these longings that that cause us more suffering uh, because we have the delusion that somehow by getting these things or having these experiences, that will resolve that longing and we'll be satisfied and we'll come to the end of our longing. You know, and, and the fact is that there is no end to longing. There is no end to craving. And in fact, the more we act on it, the more we feed it. And it's the, the karmic, uh, consequence of acting on desire is increased desire not less desire and this is you know quite evident to a bunch of addicts right this is what addiction is is like oh i i i like that i'll do that so that i can feel good and once i do it and feel good i want to do it again and i want to do it more now let's make it a double you know and and uh, let's try the extra strength. And the, is there another version I can try? And, you know, well, I like the up. Let me try that down. Let me try a sideways. And um, 
And so we see that desire just feeds desire. So this precept then is a reminder and a, and a guideline to let go. Yeah. The third precept, take the training precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. Well, you know, we can see that in the first two precepts, you know, this is kind of implied, you know, the, the violence, potential violence of the anger behind the first precept, the, the grasping of the second precept, but sexual misconduct is a particular form, form of harm that the Buddha highlights because it is so common, you know, because it tends to, I don't want to say it's universal, but just so common and, and so pernicious uh, and so destructive of people's psyches. Uh, obviously destructive of the victim's psyches, but also destructive of the perpetrator's psyches. And the, the energy of our sexuality is so powerful. I've heard it said that, that, uh, because I don't know that this quote, but I've heard it from another teacher saying that the Buddha said that if there were another form of desire as strong as sexual desire, no one would ever be able to get enlightened. You know, that, you know, that it's just, it's, it's so powerful. And, and, and we see how it's, uh, you know, tied in with spirituality in positive and in negative ways, certainly in the positive way, or we could say this precept is tied in, you know, in the fact that it's that celibacy is what what the monastics are meant to practice and and people in other traditions, priests and the like, uh, try at least to practice celibacy. But even in those contexts, we know, certainly from the many scandals across religions, that you know, the attempt to control particularly male sexuality uh, does not always work. And that sometimes that attempted control winds up causing more harm. And there are those who think that celibacy isn't a wise path uh, because, because of that repressiveness that can, that can wind up causing more harm. But to, to talk, talk a little bit more about our sexuality, maybe outside of uh, particularly the sexual misconduct, uh, you know, I, I find that just talking about our sexuality in an open and honest way is really, really valuable for people and rare, you know, uh, uh, of course, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to get too specific in a, a mixed group and a particular group that didn't come to talk about sexuality. But, but just to say that, you know, the, the times when I have uh, particularly met with a group of men and started to talk about my own experience and invited others to talk about their, their own experience there was this tremendous sense of first of relief because it's one of the topics that continues to be taboo in our culture, being honest about our sexuality. And we, we can see just the fact that 
uh, you know, we have these, we're going through this tremendous turmoil in our country about abortion. That's obviously tied up with people's ideas about sexuality and particularly about, you know, conservative ideas about women and, and, and trying to control women's bodies. And, and uh, that, so, so we can see that it's such a complicated uh, topic and, and, and one that when it is repressed comes out in those kind of destructive ways. Um, but the thing that so often comes out in these groups that I've met with is the shame and the sense of many people, at least many men that I have met with are, you know, feel shame around their sexuality. And then when they hear about other people, other men's experience, feel a lot of relief to realize, oh, the, my cravings and maybe some of my behaviors, not the har- not harmful behaviors, but ones that, you know, aren't <laughs> ones that they do in public, let's say, um, you know, are not aberrant, you know, <laughs> that having feelings, having cravings, that our, our sexuality is so, uh, it's so our society is so screwed up around it because on the one hand, you know, there's all this sort of focus on sexiness, right, in the culture, and then on the other hand, uh, you know, you're not supposed to talk about it, and you're not supposed to have any feelings. Uh, and, you know, when it comes to sex as a so-called addiction, well, it's, it presents this other r- really challenging problem, which is that with uh, drugs and alcohol, we can just stop. It's possible to stop with sexuality, even if we're, even if we're a celibate monk. And I have talked to celibate monks about their sexuality it's an issue. <laughs> it does. It's not like, oh, I, I put on these orange robes and I don't think about sex anymore. No, it's it can be very, very challenging. So there's this, I'll t- say as an aside, that there's this kind of parallel between sexual, I don't like the term sex addiction, but I don't have another term for it. So we'll just use that for now. You know, sexual addiction and food addiction, which is also not a great term, but this parallel that they are both things that are, we have to live with and we can't just turn them off. And and so they have this, this shared um, quality that, that requires a different relationship to them. And when we, when we feel like with our food or with our sexuality, that there's something we would like to, that it feels like it's off in some way, or it's, it's, it's running us too much. We can't just say, Oh, I'm going to quit. You know, I'm going to quit being a sexual being. I'm going to quit eating. No. So, Oh, that means I need to put boundaries about around it. Well, how do I do that? Because as addicts, we're not very good at boundaries. You know, the, the whole reason that we had to stop drinking or stop using drugs is that we couldn't moderate. Now I know there are some who can, and that's, you know, I, I bow to you, but that's not really who I'm talking to, you know, um, 
so so uh, this is just to me one of those challenges that is uh just to acknowledge and to see that that uh our sexuality and particularly if we are if we find ourselves driven with energies that are difficult to manage uh it ain't easy <laughs> and we must avoid harming that's number one right the precept of non-harming and and if we can do that then you know i think we're doing well you know frankly um you know that that can look very different it can look very different uh and and many and people people have different ways of managing that um but the key thing is the non-harming you know, um, the fourth precept is <laughs> I take the training precept to refrain from false and harmful speech. I'm not going to talk too much about that um, because it's something uh, you know, that's sort of like a whole other topic, uh, right? Speech. It actually is in the, in the Eightfold Path, right? Speech has its own, is one, uh, one element that's separate from right action. So we see that speech actually shows up twice in the Eightfold Path, which I think is a you know, indicator of the importance of speech. Um, so maybe I am going to speak a fair amount about it. I've got, I've got time. <laughs> you know, speech is so powerful because it's how our thoughts come into the world and so speech includes writing and you know and and the i think the key challenge of it is that our thoughts are usually expressions of ego so it's very easy and very common for speech to become an expression of ego and so the challenge as a, when we're tra trying to practice mindful speech and right speech is to see if what we're saying is driven by I. Is it about me? And it's, you know, it's so interesting to, when you find yourself in a conversation where and this is a typical conversation I hear and that I've and that I've been in many times, which is one person starts to talk about themselves or some experience or something going on for them. And the other person responds not by addressing what they're talking about, but by what that first person triggers in them, some memory. Oh, I did that too. Oh, when oh you want. Like, you know, I just went to Ireland. So, oh, you were in Ireland? Oh, you know, I went to Ireland. Did you go to, 
you know, Belfast. Oh, if you, oh, you didn't go to Belfast. Oh, you got to go to Belfast. Oh, well, I heard that Belfast, you know, and, and neither people aren't actually like talking in order to hear each other. They're rather trying to tell their story. Right. So that's the first thing I think that's a challenge in rights in mindful speech. It's not necessarily not right speech because you're not lying or doing something harsh, but you're not just not present, you know, so to me, that's like the starting point. And, and really for me, what was the most important thing I think for me to learn in right speech was right listening. And, the, and to just be able to listen without judging and with an open heart, that allows me to respond and to speak skillfully. And if I really listen, then I tend to speak to the other person rather than just speaking for myself. Um, you know, also say that, you know, speech is really the cornerstone of 12 steps, you know, sharing in meetings. We can, so we can see how healing it is to be able to speak the truth and to be heard and to be listened to, to not be judged, to not be interrupted, just be invited to speak the truth. Uh, and, and that was really, for me, the beginning of my real recovery was being able to speak the truth in, in meetings. Um, you know, in other places, I mean, in therapy is another place where we're using speech as a healing, uh, a healing mode. So the fifth precept is I take the training precept to refrain from using intoxicants. They cloud the mind. <laughs> and, uh, you know, obviously uh, this is the one that's directly related to addiction. And, and it's, it's always interesting to, to hear an, uh, a Dharma teacher or Dharma practitioner talk about this precept, uh, someone who isn't in recovery. To, to talk about this precept because they pretty quickly tend to find a way around uh, following it by the letter of the law, which is fine. I mean, as I said, I don't follow every precept to the letter either. Um, so, uh, the, but this is the one I like to follow <laughs> as best I can uh, in terms of at least intoxicants, uh, the, the substance. Uh, I intoxicate myself in other ways, sports, <laughs> other, you know, TV, uh, uh, Twitter. <laughs> that's a that's that's really an intoxicant. Um, but uh, you know, I've come to see sobriety itself. Uh, I call it a sacred state, uh, and you know, I don't. Everybody doesn't see it that way, but for me, that's what carries me forward in my in my sobriety, not just my recovery, but my sobriety, meaning the not, the not using part of my recovery, which is not all of the recovery, right? Recovery is a lot more than, than uh, not using. But there's something precious about sustaining our non-intoxicated state for years and years. Uh, I just remember this moment when I was around two years sober, when I woke up one morning and thought, 
I remember going to sleep last night. And I've been remembering going to sleep every morning for the last two years. And that's really different. Because there's something about intoxication that uh, is harmful to our consciousness. I have a phrase somewhere in my... In, and I'm drawing, tonight I'm kind of drawing from, from things from my book, uh, A Burning Desire, where I, where I go through a lot of these, these precepts in this way. Um, I forget, I would like to, I would like to find this, this phrase I had. Um, So uh, I'll just say that it's, there's this kind of, I think, trauma that happens to our, to our consciousness when we get, especially with a blackout. Um, and it, it, I just, I just, I went and I had that moment at two years sober, I realized that it, I, I kind of started to see that there was, that one of the reasons my life didn't change and, and really it didn't change because I wasn't growing uh, emotionally or spiritually was because the intoxication, which I, t I probably, you know, got drunk. I, I was periodic, but, but it was probably like about once a month, uh, for about 20 years, earlier in my late teens and early 20s, more often, and then I started to control it more. But that every time, particularly those blackouts and those, those real getting drunk, drunk, they kind of, it's like they set you back to square one. And, and it's like I had to rebuild my I don't know, my mind, my consciousness, somehow there, no, there was, it wasn't possible to really sustain growth. And I, I can't explain it any better than that. And I, I know I'm not explaining it very well, but, you know, the, the, the proof of that is what happens to us when we do stay sober for an extended period of time. And it's one of the reasons why time in recovery is considered so important. You know, we don't really say to somebody, well, uh, um, during these five years of being sober, have you had problems? Like, has your, has your life been difficult? Oh, well, if it was difficult and you've had problems, then, you know, you're not really uh, doing it right. No, we don't say that. We say, if you manage to just not drink and use, no matter what happens, because we know you're going to have problems, that's valuable. And I think that what happens is that over those, and I think it really does take years, because we see that uh, certainly the first 10 years of sobriety, there is this ongoing process of change and growth. And, and, I, and I think it after 10, 15 years, it's not as obvious. But those first 10 years, certainly, especially the first five years, it's really obvious that things are changing. And it's not just because, oh, I stopped drinking, and now I show up for work. Yeah, that's, that's really important. 
but I believe there's something else that's going on on a psycho spiritual level. Uh, uh, now, I, now I'm just maybe, uh, you know, spouting my own <laughs> belief system, but I really believe in it. But this comes back to why I say that sobriety is a sacred state and that when we sustain it, there's a, there's something that happens. So, so yeah, beyond, uh, Intox like substances, substance abuse, there are other intoxicants. And this is where we can connect uh, quite specifically this precept with the third poison, delusion. Right. So if greed, if first precept is about hatred and the second precept is about greed, the fifth precept is really about delusion. And you know, delusion is when we don't understand reality, when we don't see reality. And when we're intoxicated, clearly, we are not seeing reality. And it's impossible to be mindful. So delusion is, in some ways, the opposite of mindfulness, It's the opposite of right view. But we can see when we define it in those terms, when we say that this precept is about the, the antidote to delusion, we can see, oh, well, there's other ways I get deluded. And yeah, the, specifically some of the things that I said, uh, like, you know, TV or Twitter, or, uh, but we do that. We can do this to ourselves. I mean, it's interesting you know, when you go on a meditation retreat, and I know many of you have been on intensive retreats, you can, when you start to get bored, or just like, you know, just, you know, you're just sick of it. And you just, you can delude yourself, you can start to, you know, just go off into stories and fantasies. And, you know, I can remember on one early retreat, it was a three-week retreat, and it was a really powerful retreat. But I remember one day when I was really bored, when I just started to take my mind through the streets of a town in Cape Cod where I had lived one summer, you know, and I just was like, just walked around in my mind, right? Just deluded myself. I just created a delusion in my own mind because I didn't want to be in reality, which is, you know, a good <laughs> a sort of pointer there to like, well, why do we get into the delusion? Because we don't want to experience reality. Why do we become addicts? Because we don't want to experience reality. So, um, you know, delusion is, is this, can be one aspect of it, is this escapism and this unwillingness to be with the present moment. So this brings us back then to mindfulness, you know, the, and, and mindfulness has to be there to, to practice the precepts, to catch ourselves when greed, hatred, or delusion appears. Uh, but it also, uh, the um, mindfulness then is the antidote to these 
to these precepts. It's the ultimate, I mean, to these actions, these behaviors, the ultimate antidote. So just to, to finish up, I'm going to, I'm going to read something from uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi. And for those of you who have been with me uh, a lot the last couple of years, you've heard, you've heard some of this before, because it's really one of my favorite um, readings on the, on the precepts and on, on Sila in general, the, the right action. And this is from his book called just the noble eightfold path, the way to the end of suffering, just a, a short book and a brilliant book. So this is about the parts of the eightfold path that include right speech, right livelihood and right action. And that section of the eightfold path is called the sila, uh, the element of sila or um, moral discipline. He says, Though the principles laid down in this section restrain immoral actions and promote good conduct, me, their ultimate purpose is not so much ethical as spiritual. They are not prescribed merely as guides to actions, but primarily as aids to mental purification. As a necessary measure for human well-being, ethics has its own justification in the Buddha's teaching, and its importance cannot be underrated. So, if you know his language is quite high language, and I'll try to make it a little more simple, saying that morality and 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 like skillful karmic action just in you know is is you know it's a fundamental buddhist principle but that in the eightfold path that's not what it's pointing to so he says in the special context of the noble eightfold path ethical principles are subordinate to the path's governing goal final deliverance from suffering thus the for the moral training to become a proper part of the path it has to be taken up under the tutelage of the first two factors, right view and right intention, and lead beyond to the training and concentration and wisdom. So, so morality and the five precepts aren't this separate thing. They're tied in with the path. Uh, so the, uh, I think there was another line. Uh, uh, it is clear that what is really being cultivated through the observant observance of moral precepts is the mind. So, uh, so the idea is that take and and this is like a key principle, and it goes back to what I said about the very beginning when I said, well, when I started to practice Buddhist meditation meditation i didn't really get it and my practice didn't really blossom until i got sober because following the precepts helps is is an underpinning of meditation following the precepts as he says purifies the mind it's not just action it's that when we're living in this way we don't feel guilt we're not afraid that 
the police are going to come to the door. <laughs> we haven't stolen anything. You know, we haven't killed anyone. We're not harming anyone. So there's a sense of lightness. And I think anybody who's, who's sober knows this feeling, sometimes called the bliss of blamelessness. Just, you know, sometimes it's like, yeah, it's just another day sober. But on the other hand, I don't have those, you know, things going on that there used to always be juggling something like, oh, if that person finds out about this or if my boss knows I'm doing that, you know, just all the ways that our lives be so become so complicated when we're breaking moral precepts. You know, as usual, when I talk about this, I can't help but think about a certain former president, you know, who seems to be devoted to breaking precepts and, and sort of how complicated his life is, what a mess it is. And, and I think about my own life and how complicated and messy it was when I was breaking precepts. And so to, to, it's, it's really a beautiful practice when we take the precepts on these multiple levels and we say, oh, yeah, I got sober and I'm trying to live skillfully now and not not harm people. And that immediately changes my life. And, yeah, it changes my relationship to my boss and my partner and my family and my friends and all of those outward and social elements and professional and all of that stuff. But also it changes me internally. So on this other level, oh, it's more, it's easier for me to meditate. You know, it's easier for me to cultivate these qualities of loving kindness and compassion because my mind isn't stirred up and, and agitated. Uh, and certainly I'm not hung over, you know, I'm not stoned. I mean, I've tried meditating when I was stoned. It was not great. So, um, you know, I, I'll just, you know, offer this to you tonight and we can, we can take some questions, but before I do, just to, just to wrap this up to say, look at these precepts for yourself, you know, and, the, and many Buddhist books talk about them. And as I said, they're, they're in many of my books, uh, you know, both one breath at a time and, and burning desire both have, uh, as well as my workbook have you know, lots written about the precepts. Look at the precepts and think about them in your own life and think about, first of all, just take some joy and some pleasure in the ways that you're already just following these things. It's like, oh, nobody has to tell me to do this. Like I do this naturally now. Take some joy in that and also reflect on how you can uh, cultivate them. If there are ways where you go, you know, I could be more skillful around this, around my speech or, you know, um, not taking what's not given or how am I intoxicating myself, whatever, just look at it, uh, look at them and, and see if uh, they can be developed more and, and really uh, make them a part of your life in a, in a helpful way, in a way that you find helpful. So I hope that's of some use. Uh, take what you need, leave the rest, as we say. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.